Welcome to another episode of the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And we're joined today by our general counsel, Mike Sikopoulos. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. All right, here's uh, another one from our series, Ripped from the Headlines, where we try to analyze a medical legal case that we've seen, but likely almost nobody else has seen. Uh, the, the goal of which is to keep our um, listeners from becoming the protagonist in our continued series, correct? Absolutely. We want to use others' misfortune to uh, help people avoid having the same problem. To educate. Sometimes your special purpose in life is to serve as a warning to others, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Let, let me jump in here and describe what we have here. This is a case out of uh, Massachusetts, which rendered a $700,000 verdict and was delayed of diagnosis of melanoma, which led to a lowered survival prognosis. I'll go through the fact pattern here. The patient was a 78-year-old man who had a lesion on his arm removed by his primary care doctor. Uh, the lesion was sent to the pathologist who became the defendant and diagnosed it as a basal cell carcinoma. Um, about 14 months later, the patient had another two lesions removed from the exact same arm. Those lesions were diagnosed as something different, in this case, metastatic melanoma, stage three or stage four. During the patient's 13-month treatment, the original specimen from the first lesion was, re uh, was reviewed by a different pathologist and ultimately was diagnosed as a melanoma. So the first, um, the first specimen, which had been diagnosed as a basal cell carcinoma, actually was reviewed by yet another pathologist to be melanoma. So the defendant pathologist had incorrectly diagnosed the, spe uh, diagnosed the specimen, delaying the patient's treatment of the melanoma. The argument was that if the patient's melanoma had been originally diagnosed correctly, he would have had a better curate. However, now, because it's a stage three or stage four, his disease was considered incurable. The defendant pathologist uh, pathologist denied any wrongdoing and offered that the delay in diagnosis did not affect the survival rate. The case settled for $700,000. So it's kind of interesting here. They're basically saying, yeah, I got it wrong. Okay. The diagnosis was wrong, but it didn't matter. Meaning that had I gotten it right, you still would have had this stage three or stage four cancer with the exact same prognosis. Or if it was a different stage, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. <clears throat> and this will be kind of interesting because we're going to start a conversation about a legal theory, not, and it's not available in all states, called loss of chance, again called loss of chance. And just a warning to everyone, this is going to be a little wonky. I know the law in general is considered wonky, but this is going to be even more wonky than usual. But it's a, it's a, legal theory that I think everybody should be aware of, and I think you should be aware of it because it's it's usable in about half of the states. <clears throat> Not every state, but about 50% of states allow this thing called loss of chance, and, and we'll, we'll chat about this. So let's, let me just kind of give everyone some background. So the traditional rule is that doctors are not liable for providing negligent care if about at outcome was probable even with good care, meaning that 
if the patient had a horrible prognosis, no matter what, no matter what, you would not be liable. So for example, in some situations, death because of a pre-existing condition might be a probable outcome, whether or not the specific treatment was provided appropriately, the traditional rule was that the doctor is not liable. So if the patient's prognosis is horrible, whether you followed the standard of care or whether you didn't follow the standard of care, the traditional rule is that, hey, look, it really didn't matter because it didn't cause the patient's death. Now, to recap, for a patient, in this case, and now a plaintiff, to prevail, they have to run the board. They need to prove, not the doctor needs to defend against, but the patient needs to prove four elements. One is that the that the doctor owed a duty to this individual, that there was a doctor-patient relationship. Number two, that the doctor needed to conform to the standard of care. And if he didn't, that it caused damages. So four elements, uh, a duty, like doctor-patient relationship, standard of care, causation, and damages. And the, the, um, the plaintiff, the patient needs to run the board. They need to win all four of those four. And the, fir the first and the last are generally pretty easy to prove. It's generally not even up for uh, debate. What Did the doctor owe a duty? Well, I mean, if there's a doctor-patient relationship, yeah, they definitely owed a duty. So check that box. Did the patient die or have, um, you know, some horrible outcome? Yes. Okay. I mean, it, it's unlikely an attorney would be taking a case if there were no damages, because if there's no money, no damages, then they would just be doing it on principle. And often I ask when somebody says they're doing it on principle, I ask them to spell it. Is it P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E <laughs> or A-L? Because if it's A-L, then yes, it's about the money. So those two items, the bookends generally are not up for debate they're not contentious it's the did the doctor violate the standard of care and if so did it cause damages and the causation of the damages is where this can become contentious with this loss of chance mike before we go on any further do you want to add anything to the analysis of you know how a you know what patients slash plaintiffs need to do to prevail um, no, I, I think you're 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 right on track here. My my only caveat to folks is uh, jurors don't like this, right? They don't want to believe that uh, a physician can't help someone who's who's mm -hmm. ill, and so there is, I think, uh, somewhat of a uh, of a of a bias in in favor of the um, uh, of the argument that um, that that cuts against this, right? Because you don't want to think that your physician really doesn't matter what he or she does, you're going to die anyways. That's the the argument in a, in a nutshell uh, here, and, um, and and jurors don't like that. So that, that that is the sausage being made because in the background, it is unlikely you will see the jurors microanalyze the case in terms of duty, standard of care, causation, and damages. They may. Um, they may be requested based on the jury instructions, but um, sometimes you don't see how the sausage is made. And even, even if you say that, yeah, I violated a standard of care, but the patient would have died anyway, um, the jury may not uh, buy into that. They may just say that you are liable. So I think that's a really good point. What you're describing is the ultimate conclusion in this 
you know, box. You don't know how the box ultimately is analyzing the case, but it's going to come out with a binary conclusion, either uh, libel or not libel. That's right. right. And you can you can just hear the jurors discussing it saying, well, what the hell good is a doctor for anyways? If they're saying it didn't really matter what they did, why why even that can't be? Why would we even attempt to to use the physician if at the end of the day the physician admits, oh, what the hell, it won't make any difference anyways? Now, now I'll follow up with your prescient point with this, meaning that even though the four uh, different elements are necessary for a plaintiff to prevail in a medical negligence case. If the same patient's family were to file a complaint with a board of medicine saying the doctor dropped the ball with a standard of care, they wouldn't have to prove all of these elements because the board of medicine would, would be focusing on just on the one issue. Did it, did you violate the standard of care? The, the board is it really going to analyze whether um, whether the patient died of something else or whether their death was inevitable, regardless of the care that was provided? They will look at this and say that, yeah, did you violate the standard of care? So they have the authority to potentially take action uh, against your license. So two different domains. You know, in court, it's actually a little bit harder because there are more elements to prove. With the Board of Medicine, their their limitation, their analysis is much narrower and to make matters worse they often don't have a, a statute of limitations so with a with a patient trying to file a medical negligence claim the clock is ticking and depending upon where you live so for example if you live in california it's one year from the date that the patient um, was injured or knew about the deficiency that caused the injury so tick tock tick tock um, other states, it's uh, two years. Some states, it's three years. But with the Board of Medicine, they they can go back for a long, long period of time. Whether they would go back eight or nine years, I don't know. But they may go back based on a more recent case and say, hey, give us your records and then do a much deeper dive. Now, the argument can always be, hey, um, all states have uh, different medical retention laws. And in many states, you're not obligated to keep records more than seven or eight years so at the end of the day if you know i think they could ask for records uh from 10 years earlier but the argument may be we had a case in maine which was similar to this where they were looking at a more recent set of activities um, and they said hey the patient had surgery 10 years ago we want all records and the retort was whoa we only need to keep records in maine for seven years we're following the law so, but if you do have the records, you'll need to turn them over. I, I don't think you're going to have an argument if you if you go to the file cabinet and they're sitting right there. You can't say we don't have to give it because we don't have to retain them. If you if you purge them or get rid of them after X number of years, then okay. But if they're sitting in your possession, you probably would have to deliver them to the to the medical board. We, we've definitely done a, uh, a a side side detour here, have we not? We we have, and as time goes on, it's it's less uh, likely that that records really get purged because they're all electronic and um, don't take up the kind of space that the old old charts uh, did or 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 do. So um, we may see less of that. But you're absolutely right. Uh, to the extent that there's any liability, it's lurking in those records from years ago can be problematic. Sometimes the purging of the records gets done, even if they are electronic, just to prevent 
issues or problems down the road. So anybody that has data has a potential problem in terms of having to pull up that data and getting sucked into a, a conflict uh, down the road. And if you have so much data, then ultimately it can be a headache to manage. Uh, just think about what imaging centers have to do. Um, but then, you know, if you if you have um, a record you're requesting from Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile, just asking whether a particular phone call was made X number of years ago, um, they argue we only keep this data for a period of time. Now, the question I would ask is, well, why do they get rid of it? And I think sometimes they get rid of it, mostly because they don't want to get sucked into having to manage the data with request for information by lawyers saying, was a telephone call made you know, X number of years ago. So I, I think if you are going to purge records, you should have a policy as to how long you're going to keep them. Um, are you going to purge all records um, X number of years after a particular date and conforming to the state regulations? Um, or are you going to hang on to them? If you hang on to them, you probably are doing your patients a service. On the other hand, um, if there's a problem, the problem may rear its head down the road. All right, so let's uh, let's go back to this wonky issue called loss of chance because that was the argument that was made in this particular case. They're basically saying, well, yeah, the patient had a really bad problem, metastatic melanoma, um, but if his uh, if it had been diagnosed, you know, x number of months uh, earlier, a little over a year earlier, he may not have had the same stage. So the argument is, well, there's a difference between stage two, three, and four, and who knows? I mean, something that became stage four at one point was stage three, and at one point was stage two. So the truth is we don't know, and you, even though the patient's likelihood of survival may have been very low, your negligence made it lower, okay? So let's let's talk about what that, uh, what that means. So under the traditional analysis, as a matter of probability, um, it is more likely than not that the ailment that killed the patient in each instance, and I'm just reading here, so this is kind of the wonky analysis of this, the doctor would expect would escape liability no matter how egregious the negligence. As we stated earlier, if it turns out that the patient's um, likely outcome was greater than 50%, that they would have had a bad outcome and perhaps death, um, even if the doctor had engaged in unusually egregious behavior, he would escape liability. And this has led scholars to what they call them recurring misses. When doctors systematically escape liability for negligent treatment in cases involving severely ill patients, let me let me describe that again. So recurring misses um, take advantage, if you will, of um, um, the traditional medical legal system where doctors systematically escape liability for persistent negligent treatment over and over involving severely ill patients. So that's the traditional uh, analysis. Um, and let me just uh, go through a typical fact pattern. So here, and this is based on a real case, the patient had cancer at the time he was examined by a doctor defendant. The examination failed to detect the cancer. The jury found 
that at the time of the initial examination, the patient only had a 37% chance of survival. So here, the patient had a less than 50% chance of survival, no matter what the doctor did, but here the doctor blew it. The defendant's negligence destroyed that small uh, opportunity to survive. As a matter of probability, he would have succumbed to the, um, to the illness regardless of the negligence. But of course, if we have three such plaintiffs in exactly the same situation, the odds suggest that negligence would have killed one of them. So let's go through the math here. And again, I apologize for going through the math. I did tell everyone up front this would be wonky and we'll, we ultimately will conclude with some straight language that everybody can, can use and digest uh, in a useful way. So let's assume that the full value of a wrongful death is $600,000 and let's say a patient had a 45% chance of survival before the um, medical event, and that had a 15% chance of survival after the malpractice. So if the doctor had done everything properly in this, um, in this example, the patient would have had a 45% chance of survival, but because of the negligence, he now only had a 15% chance of survival. Now just remember, the odds are greater than 50% this patient would have died from this underlying uh, condition. So the way this is thought about in states that adopt this loss of chance theory is a reduction of 30% chance of survival. So as I said, 45% chance of surviving had the doctor done everything properly, 15% chance of survival if the doctor, um, because the doctor had screwed up, there's a reduction of a 30% chance of survival. So the way you would do the math on this, remember we said that a full loss would be $600,000. Now we're talking about a 30% reduction in the chance of survival. So 30% of 600,000 equals $180,000. Now that would be the argument that would be made in states that adopt loss of chance. It's loss of chance for you know, the opportunity to survive, even if the odds are you would not have survived anyway, if they were less than 50%. So how many um, states have um, accepted this? I'm looking at my notes here and it looks like 24 states, about half, have adopted some version of the loss of chance doctrine. So odds are uh, for the listeners that at least some of you, probably many, of you um, live in a state, practice in a state where the loss of chance doctrine is relevant. 17 states has, have actually rejected it and four have deferred ruling on the doctrine and then five are mute. They just have yet to uh, address the matter. So one state in particular that I think um, is interesting that has commented on it is Texas. And there, they had a case, the Supreme Court had a case that they uh, ruled on, and they noted that they didn't like the whole notion of loss of chance because they thought it created a slippery slope. Let me explain. So if loss of chance can be applied in the medical malpractice context, why stop there? Why shouldn't it be applied to the legal malpractice plaintiff's claim of a lost chance of victory at trial due to poor lawyering, or perhaps an entrepreneur's lost chance of success for a failed business due to the actions of another. So in Texas, they're basically saying if the opportunity for an, a positive outcome was less than 50%, that there's 
we're not going to play the math game related to loss of chance. And their argument was that healthcare is not unique. There's nothing specific uh, about healthcare in tort law that would give them um, pause for for um, allowing loss of chance to uh, to be used. And to quote, they said, we see nothing unique about the healing arts, which should make its practitioners more responsible for possible but not probable consequences than any other negligent actor. So I find that kind of interesting. They were looking at this in a holistic or more global sense with tort law. Um, and it's not just doctors that can be sued for malpractice. It's also um, engineers, lawyers, etc. And I think the argument was that it's very difficult to prevail in a legal malpractice case, but if we allowed loss of chance for healthcare, we probably have to allow it for legal malpractice. And the courts would be clogged with people saying, well, I know I would have lost, but your horrible lawyering made it more likely that I would lose. So if my likelihood of success was 20%, you know, before you took this case, meaning that I really was rolling the dice, but because of your rotten lawyering, you took it down to 10%, then um, then I, I don't get the full value of this case, but I get something. And I think, I think the uh, Supreme Court of Texas was basically saying it ain't going to happen. This was not going to happen. So this, this, yeah, jump in, Mike, please. This, this, this really kind of illustrates just how tortured it is to try to convert um, uh, physical damages and in, in health conditions into dollars, right? I mean, it, it, there's not a good conversion um, between pain and suffering and, and illness uh, and putting a monetary uh, sticker on that. And that's really, I think, what we see with all of this are people trying to wrestle around. Uh, not that there's a better system. It's just an imperfect one. And we see that often, unfortunately. I mean, just the mere calculation of damages for pain and suffering is all over the place. I mean, you basically see tremendous variability in the bookends uh, for this. And now we're basically saying that um, there's yet another shot to potentially get a win, some money, even though the the likelihood that this patient would have survived would have been very low. I also think that one of the problems that you might get from this, uh, at least from states that have loss of chance, is that it may be a disincentive to take care of the sickest of the sick. Because if these are people that are, you know, destined for a bad outcome, namely death or severe disability, regardless of what you do. And there's a chance to make the argument that your doctoring made that horrible chance even worse. You accelerated the death and, you know, ultimately, if you can say that you had fewer days on earth, you're going to say there's a dollar value to that. And that would be the argument that's being made. Now, I do agree in some sense with the Supreme Court of Texas. It is a slippery slope. I think it's very difficult to calculate. Now, that is, I'm not condoning the fact that there was a misread related to the PATH specimen. They called it a basal cell carcinoma instead of a melanoma on the initial read. So that that's a problem. And hmm. I, I don't know how we solve uh, for those problems. I mean, there's a tendency with juries to say, look, they really blew it. So somebody needs to get paid 
on this and maybe the system as a whole just accepts that but i find it fascinating that you know half the states have adopted loss of chance and other the other you know half of the united states have not and it would be interesting to see whether the states that have adopted it have higher professional liability premiums i'm going to take a guess that the answer is yes um i don't have the list in front of me i just have the total number of states uh, that have it any final thoughts uh, on this mike before we no, it's, a, it's, from it's a sad it, no it's a sad situation right anytime that you're dealing um with this you're almost by definition talking about a patient that has real health problems before we even get to this legal theory right i mean that's what the the entry ticket to this legal theory is is that you're you're uh, got got some real problems so um <clears throat> it's a, a sad situation and in massachusetts we know what the uh, the answer is hopefully uh, our our listeners can steer clear of this whole bailiwick yeah so let's wrap up the traditional rule is that the um the patient needs to run the board they need to demonstrate the doctor owed a duty that there was a standard of care owed to the patient and that violation of that standard caused damages so you got to win all of those you got to run the board um the traditional rule also is that the the um the negligence needed to have been more likely than not to have caused a bad outcome. If, if death is a bad outcome, then the negligence needed to have increased the probability of death to beyond 50%. Um, with loss of chance, you can take someone with a, you can take a patient, I'll call them a plaintiff, with a horrible outcome. And if the negligence of the, of the doctor made it more likely that the patient would have a, a bad outcome, namely a quicker demise or uh, a less likely chance of survival, then that can be compensated. Again, in those states that have the loss of chance um, legal doctrine and about half the states have that. So that's all I have to say about this matter. And we thank you for listening to this very wonky analysis of loss of chance um, legal theory, and we will catch you next time on the Medical Liability Minute. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we wanna protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.